we can again be thankful for the friendly confines of a building as warm and as comfortable as this one to be able to come together this evening. The opportunity that we have to sing, to pray, to partake in the Lord's Supper for those who didn't have opportunity earlier today and also to engage in just the wonderful fellowship of those interested in doing things pleasing unto God. As we consider the lesson, as you may have noted the title in the bulletin, The Church as a Family, we'll use as a springboard the text that was read just a moment earlier from the third chapter of Galatians. But as we look more carefully at the nature and the notion of the church as a family, might I suggest that one of the things that we might be able to do to begin the lesson would be to look interestingly at just a few of the many ways in which the church is described and set forth in the pages of the New Testament, and upon so doing, then to focus a bit more effort on that study as it relates to the church as a family. So some introductory thoughts that I put together for us to consider in leading us in that direction would be these. How glorious, in fact, is that wonderful and that blessed body of Christ. It still stands as the greatest institution upon earth. As great, for instance, as the greatness associated with the one who founded it. None other than Jesus, our Savior. In Acts 20, verse 28, on that occasion, as Paul addressed the elders of the Ephesian congregation, he made note to them, Take heed to yourselves and to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. The marvelous description of that gloriousness associated with the church, the fact he purchased it with his blood, and the language of Ephesians 3 lifts that even to the height of the following extreme to the intent that now and to the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known the manifold wisdom of God, known how, Paul, by the church. It is you and I as the church that proclaim to all the great glories in heaven the marvelous extent and the wonder of the beauty of God's love for the human family, extolled also in the very verse that follows it. Notice the extent of it in this text, Ephesians 3, verse number 11 to the intent, as he described it, verse 11, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The eternity of that purpose may be seen in some of the ways that we might now might note rather briefly. The church is described as a body in various passages. What kind of body? The body of Christ. For instance, in Colossians 1.18, highlighted in texts like this one, and he is the head of the body, the church. Notice that he, namely Jesus, head of the body. One of the things one could then do is consider the nature of how is the church like a body. Many glorious thoughts can be learned from that study, and perhaps 1 Corinthians 12 highlights just a few of the things that might be gleaned in that kind of study. But not only that, the church is likened unto a bride. Interesting, isn't it? That loveliness of a family that's forged between the love of a man and his wife. It's also the case that the church is described as a bride on that occasion, the bride of Christ. Revelation 21, verses 8 and 9, highlight that idea. And many things can be learned about that kind of an idea as well. Not only that, the church is called a city. It's the city of God, a very precious city indeed. And by a study of that idea, one can again learn much about the nature of the church, what it stands for, how it's to operate. Perhaps also it's called a flock. In that interesting text of 1 Peter 5 verse 2, 
we might well notice that just as a shepherd carefully, lovingly, powerfully watches over a flock to ensure that they are carefully guarded, so too the church is likened into that same thing. The church is called a kingdom in Matthew 16, 19. It is called the sanctuary of God in Psalm 114. And of course, we haven't come close to exhausting the list. There are many ways the church is described. But no doubt, as you might have guessed from the title, we'll focus our efforts on really but one interesting consideration. When the New Testament describes the church as a family, what is being said? What are some of the ideas that might help us to more carefully and lovingly look upon the church in that same way? The church as a family. So might I invite you over the next few moments to look with me at four ways, four considerations in which we can see a likeness between the church on the one hand and a family on the other. The first one we might well notice has to do with a, trying to identify what is a family. We know that perhaps there was a time in life and certainly a time in the history of the world when that idea was certainly more clearly known and understood than it might be now. There are many in our world who probably would have a very difficult time imagining in thoroughness what is meant by a family. I've attempted to borrow one description from a dictionary, and this is the way it's presented there. A family is a unit consisting of persons living in the same household. And we're going to look at that a bit more carefully in a moment, but consider some thoughts related to that, at least for the time being. First of all, that might be a single individual. If a person's a bachelor or a lady's not married, then she may live by herself and she would constitute a family of one, at least in that, that restricted way. But also a man and his wife may not have children yet or may not be able to have children. They would constitute a family of two. If they're blessed with children, then those children are a part of that family, and they in unison, husband and wife and children, enjoy all the fortitude and the blessings that accord to, in fact, what goes with the description of a family. Might I suggest, as we consider that idea, there is a way in which the word family can be used more extensively, as it is, for, in, for instance, in the Scriptures. Generations may have passed, and yet, Individuals were said to belong to the family of Jacob or the family of Israel, meaning that they shared a common heritage. They shared a common understanding of what they were and where they had come from. They shared a very basic appreciation for what it meant to wear that name, that name of Abraham, that name of Isaac, that name of Jacob. Might I submit there is a sense in which the word family can be used in that same way today. But regardless of any of those specifics I've just mentioned, is it not still a fair thing to say that one of the binds that helps to tie a family together is the nature of its name? Oh, it's true, a lady may marry and thus take on the name of her husband, but rather she was born with and came to understand a very special name that she shared with, for instance, her family, her parents, if you please, and that degree of identification will carry with her throughout the days of her life. It is to be appreciated then and seen that a family is this unit that's able to share love and friendship and encouragement and support and fidelity and appreciation of, in fact, a commonness in their nature that is not shared with others. 
It is that notion of a family that will prompt us to look more interestingly at some of the features in which God presents it in His Word. For after all, that's the major thrust of our lesson. With that as an idea, how is the church then a family? In what way can we appreciate and understand that set of ideas? Maybe first of all, let's highlight some of those verses in which it is stated to be a family and see if we can highlight some of the thoughts that are contained within it. In fact, I chose to begin with that text that was read just a few moments ago. In Galatians 3, beginning in verse 26, Paul there by inspiration said, "'Ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus.'" For as many of us as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. As often as you and I may have lovingly seen the power in verse 27, may we not overlook that opening statement of verse 26, Ye are all the children of God. The emphasis and thrust that begins the sentence is that these Galatian brethren were in fact members not merely of a physical family, they were children of God plainly stated by Paul to be members and to have citizenship in a family that in fact had a head, namely God. That's a very interesting passage in that it identifies membership in this magnificent family of God. But that's but one of a whole number of others. In 1 John, for instance, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, on that occasion as the inspired apostle John stated issues related to this. He said, Beloved, we are all the children of God. John is often known as the apostle of love, for so often did he make reference to that attitude of love in his letters. And here he affirmed that these members, these individuals to whom he wrote, again, were sons of God. They were children of God. Perhaps one final one to quickly note in Romans eight sixteen. There, Paul even called as witness the Holy Spirit to affirm that you and I are no less than children of God. May I submit again how amazing it is to think about being children of God, this infinite being, the one who is all-wise, all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing, and yet you and I are declared to be powerfully His children. It is no question then to see that this idea is set forth in the New Testament. I suppose one question might be, how does one come to be a part of that family? As we've stated earlier, we understand in the physical realm a child is born into a family or perhaps adopted into that family. How does it happen with regard to God's family? Does it happen by physical birth? Just because one's parents are Christians or citizens in that kingdom, does that mean that when a child is born, that child automatically becomes a citizen in that kingdom? Perhaps the Lord's conversation with Nicodemus may speak volumes as it relates to this idea. In John, the third chapter, beginning in verse 3, might we remember that Jesus responded to a statement made by Nicodemus. Nicodemus, by night, as he approached the Savior, had said... Rabbi, we know that thou art one who come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus, in reply to him, directly said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a man shall be born again, he shall not see the kingdom of God. 
Unless a man's born again, the Lord said, he'll never see that kingdom. Nicodemus was admittedly confused, perplexed. For in fact, he responded by saying, how is it that a man who is old can be born again? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? The Lord in verse 5 said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Here we have a direct statement. The entrance into the kingdom is predicated upon what? A rebirth. In the same way, in most instances, that one is born into a physical family, here we have the Lord's statement on, on that point, stating that in order for one to be a member of God's family, a birthing process is essential. A birth process is necessary. Now, Jesus there said in verse 4 that the birth process is not physical. He corrected Nicodemus on that point. In fact, he said it involves water and the Spirit, verse 5. As we appreciate the meaning of what the Lord taught, that is that birth process in which you and I are buried in baptism. That old man of sin is put to death. We rise to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. And in that process, we then walk in new life. There is an affirmation of that birth process again. In many ways, especially this one, we do see a likeness between a physical family and this family of God known as the church. Do we not, in fact, see this set forth on the day of Pentecost, the very birthday of the church? On that occasion when Peter and the eleven stood forth and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, in verse 41 we're reminded that many, they that gladly received his word, were baptized, and there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. But then, six verses later, we have this identity affirmed. He says, And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Those thus that were saved were identically and at that moment added to the church. They had been born into the kingdom. They had been born into this family of God. We can thus each ask ourselves tonight, am I a citizen in that family? Am I able to wear that name and to be identified with those who call God their father? Maybe that leads us to ask about the second point in the lesson tonight. For if that opening one weren't prompting enough, consider this one. What about one's relationship to both God and to Jesus? We've noted that in a physical family, there's parenthood, those who are given the charge to direct, to guide, to lead, to set forth the way. But notice that that's also true ultimately in the God's spiritual family too. Might we ask about relationship to God? How often does the New Testament and Old Testament as well set before us the fact that those who are the children of God can call Him Father, can refer to Him as their Father, my Father, personally? I've listed some passages such as Ephesians 4 verse 6. In that interesting platform of unity, Paul said, There is one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Do each of us feel a loving relationship with Him to the point that we can call upon Him as our, as my, as your Father? Another passage in Galatians 4 verse 6 has a very tender touch to this idea. On that occasion, 
as Paul, in fact, made statement about that we can call him Abba, Father. Perhaps a reflection on the word Abba would be in order. We're aware that the word Father denotes that with which we're commonly familiar, and as it relates to God, to lean upon Him as the progenitor of this family and the one who has all leadership and guidance with respect to it. But what about the word Abba? That is an ancient word from the Aramaic that identifies and relates to that kind of word that a young child, a very young child, typically would refer to his father with. Usually a young child doesn't refer to his father as father. He used, uses dad or daddy or some other term of endearment much like that. The word Abba, quite frankly, in the Aramaic, carries behind it that same set of ideas. And doesn't that emphasize the very tender, trusting affirmation of love that exists between us and God? It's not just a distant parental kind of fatherhood. We lean upon him momentarily and daily as a trusting father in closeness would share with his son or his daughter, Abba. Now, that is not to assert that we should call God Daddy. That is not the thrust of Paul's meaning there. He's highlighting and amplifying the tender relationship we can feel. Not distanced, not far off, not stoic and only theoretical, but rather heartfelt genuine and incredibly close. Abba, Father. In 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 16, we again find Paul making reference to God and our Father. And notice he uses the word our, that possessive adjective, applying it to all of us too. Can we not see in these passages the wonderful leadership that God does and has provided to His family. He hasn't left us without guide. He hasn't left us on our own. He hasn't left us to fish in the dark, if you please, and try and find the way of rightness. No wonder Jesus said, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Even Jesus acknowledged the greatness of God as Father and petitioned Him to accept the thanksgiving that He offered on that occasion as He taught His apostles and His disciples on that occasion how to pray. To say all of that is perhaps to ask, how does Jesus enter that picture? The New Testament goes to great length to help us appreciate the myriad of roles that you and I can appreciate and see in the form of Jesus Himself. He is divine. He is deity. He is God the Son, if you will. That is pointed out to us in Hebrews 1.8. There, isn't it beautiful to hear the psalmist, in fact, quoted and applied by the Hebrew writer. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Throne of righteousness, the scepter of thy kingdom. Notice there, the Jesus is called God. He has the power of God in the sense that He is mighty, He is great, He is worthy of worship. That concept of Jesus perhaps pushes us onward to see also He is our joint heir. As great as He is, you and I as heirs of God can be appreciated to be a joint heir with Christ. May we stop to pause on that point a moment. To say that God is infinite in so many ways and to say that you and I also as a family is able to inherit from their parents. 
Have you ever had the occasion of perhaps inheriting something from your parents when they passed away or from grandparents or others? Perhaps in their will they deeded something to you? The New Testament affirms that you and I will inherit from God. And as such, we're joint heirs with Christ, appreciating the thoroughness of the grandness of the blessings that He in part also experienced. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. To quote Romans 8, verse 18. That idea pushes us on to see too that Jesus is our mediator. And furthermore, He is our high priest and He is our advocate. Taken from texts such as Hebrews 8, 1, 1 John 2, verse 1, and 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. Jesus occupies those roles and you and I can come as a part of this family to appreciate all that He is able to afford, all that He offers to you and me. This second lesson then, that we do bear a wonderful relationship to both God and to Jesus, might be perhaps leading us to see that this family of God is a very special family. It was forged with the greatest of love. And it today is maintained by the greatness of truth. And as such, it stands foursquare upon the necessity of Christ's blood. This is a great family. I don't suspect that any of us would look trivially upon being a part of our physical family. We wear that name proudly, be it Smith or Jones or Bybee. That name ties us to our forebears and it will carry on to our children and it is a standard by which we come to appreciate that by which we're known. This is a special family we're a part of. The church family should not thus be looked upon lightly or trivially or ignored, certainly not neglected. The greatness of that family may be seen also in its unity. The third plank that we'll look at in the lesson tonight have you known of a physical family that seems to be so greatly unified? If you upset one of them, you upset all of them. If you do something to one of them, you may well have another one knocking on your door asking what you have done to that brother or to that sister. They stand together. They're unified. What could be said about the church as a family? Should it be unified? Should it, in fact, appreciate a bond of strength and unity that truly is wonderful and great? I have some thoughts that I wish us to briefly consider in relation to that idea. And may I begin, first of all, by noting that the oneness of God's family cannot be overlooked at all. For just look at just a few of the passages. We find, first of all, in Ephesians 4, verse 4, that there is one body. That doesn't thus lead us to see a myriad of bodies, a host of various organizations. Paul said there is but one. And to tie that idea to the opening point in the lesson tonight, birth into that family, 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13 says that we are baptized into one body. There is but one. That word one, might I suggest to you, is the absolute pinnacle of unity. It does not mean two, it does not mean three, nor does it mean zero. One stands alone as the absolutely unique number. If there is but one of anything, it stands identically unique, for there is not another one anywhere to be found. And the New Testament affirms there's one body, but one. We can't overlook that. 
In fact, that helps us see that this one then should be a unified one. It should be a one seen in the realization of the name that is understood. I mentioned a moment ago that that surname or that name that a family wears is very important. Parents encourage their children, don't you bring bad reputation onto this family name. A child that's born takes that name by property of birth, but as they grow older, they have opportunity to contribute to the reputation it has or to in part destroy it. What about the name that we wear? Do we wear a multitude of names or is there but one? We learned earlier that there is but one body. And isn't it true the New Testament drives home the point that there is only one name as well? What is the one and only name that is supposed to be used to identify those that are members of the kingdom, members in this body, members in this family? It's the word Christian. Let's highlight some of the ways that that appears. The very first time in all the Bible that that occurs is Acts eleven twenty six, And on that occasion... As the, uh, we read, the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Here, not too many years following the establishment of the church and after the inclusion of the Gentiles, we find that God gave a name whereby those that were members of the family should be called. That name, by the way, is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It was spoken of in premonition in Isaiah 62. And in the second verse of that chapter, the prophet Isaiah speaking for God said that when, notice statement of time, when the Gentiles shall receive my righteousness and be granted repentance unto life, then will I grant unto them a new name. All you and I need do then is to look with inquiry as to when did the Gentiles thus receive God's blessing of life. We do not find it until the 10th chapter of Acts. On that occasion, Cornelius and his household gathered on that occasion. Peter preached to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 48 of Acts 10 says they were baptized. In the next chapter, when Peter was called to give an account of why he had preached to Gentiles and why he had in fact dealt with them, Peter said in verse 18 of Acts 11, These were granted repentance into life just as we were on Pentecost. There we have it. They were thus the recipients of the grand blessing of Isaiah 62 too. Eight verses later, eight verses later, Acts 11, 26, God fulfilled His promise. He gave that name, the name Christian. Later, that same name was used in regard to the preaching of Agrippa. For Agrippa said, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian, Acts 26, 28. Can we not pause perhaps and see what did Paul preach? He didn't preach about Methodism, Presbyterianism, or other things. The only name that Agrippa knew anything about was the name Christian. Finally, in 1 Peter 4.16, we're reminded one final time that if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this name. You and I wear a special name. Again, it's because we're members of this special family. Our family name, in terms of our spiritual family, is Christian. It's not Bible. That won't get anybody by themselves to heaven. But the name Christian will. For that identifies that we're members of God's family. And Christ, the one for whom we got that name, helps tie us directly to God as our mediator. And the one who, in fact, purchased the redemption of our sins.
Notice also in terms of unity that you and I as members of this family of God thus share a commonness of purpose. Often that's true of a physical family too, isn't it? We see a group of people who work together. They have each other's back, if you please, if we may borrow that statement. They are there to edify, exhort, and encourage. They have a marvelous note of unity. They have a commonness of purpose. We've seen that on Sunday morning in our studies in regard to Jacob's family. The boys going to Egypt to buy grain to help provide for the sustenance of both their father and their children. Might we notice that you and I too as members of God's family share a wonderful commonness of purpose. In Romans 15 verses 5 through 7, we're reminded there that with one mind and one mouth we glorify God. One mind, one mouth. Furthermore, we are not then determined as being distinct in the sense of having different doctrines and ideas. We stand unified on the truth of God. That's a lovely idea, isn't it? To picture that unity, that degree of commonness and that degree of accord. Does Paul not also say in the book of Romans that we are to labor one with another? We work together for the accomplishment of the will of God. We don't leave that to one person and say, let brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so take care of that. You and I may have a part to play in that work as well and as a family. We can come together and work toward that end. It certainly is to be noted that a family certainly must deal with turmoil and strife. Difficulties come, oppressions, disagreements may in fact cloud the way. But might we notice that the New Testament family is also given warning with regard to ideas like that. What should in fact take place if one is particularly given to stirring up strife and turmoil and wreaking havoc among the family. We know well that in a physical family, the parents should in fact take charge and reprimand, correct, and in fact do even stern matters if that is necessary. It is no different in God's family. We should realize that in texts such as Titus 3 verses 10 and 11, Paul said that if we should appreciate that one causes strife and turmoil, and one who is there called a heretic, notice that he says after the first and second admonition, reject such a one. Why, Paul? Because in the next verse, he subverts the nature of the family, and he in fact causes harm and endangerment to the spiritual welfare of the members of that family, and hence that one's to be rejected. In Romans 16, 17, Paul said, Mark them which cause offenses contrary to the word and avoid them. We can see the sternness associated with protecting the truthfulness of God's family. God doesn't extend membership of that family to just anyone. And we too must be careful about the degree of fellowship that might be extended in relation to it. The interesting relation in Romans 1, 29 is that in that listing of sins of the Gentiles, strife, faction, if you will, is one of the things mentioned. And Paul said that this is so harmful. It can cause so much trouble when one stirs up difficulty in the family. May we thus strive to be a loving family in Christ, a loving family appreciated as God's family. 
And might we also note, interestingly then, that leads us to the fourth and final observation we'll make tonight. The edification aspect of God's family. We've hinted at it prior to this in the lesson tonight. But quite often we see a family that is so wonderfully supportive of itself. When one of the members is hurting, the other members pick up the slack by doing what they can to assist, to encourage, to do that which is necessary for the preservation and continuation of the family. Is it that way in the spiritual body too? Does it happen to be that God has a plan in mind that we should also be edifying of each other in that way? Some passages that I would ask you to consider with me would be these. In the 23rd verse of Hebrews 10 and continuing through the next two verses, we read there of an interesting commandment given to those that are members of God's family, to those that are members of the kingdom. He said, Consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Might we notice in verse 24 that they were to consider one another to what end? to provoke one another into love and to good works. We thus, as members of God's family, have an obligation to provoke each other, not in a way that's of evil, of course, but in a way that's to love and to good works, to assist each other on the pathway toward eternal glory, to assist one another in proper righteous living. That assertion, perhaps, is only heightened in 2 Peter 1 verse 6. When there amongst the Christian graces, we read that amongst them the second to the last one is brotherly kindness. An interesting statement about kindness shared amongst brethren. Brothers and sisters, those that are members of the family, they are there commanded to share a brotherly kindness. That brotherly kindness is seen in some ways that I've attempted to explain in these ways. As we consider just these four brief considerations, one of them, suppose one member of the family is in sin. Suppose a member of the family becomes entangled in sin and is no longer faithful to the name of the family, having forfeited perhaps faithful allegiance to it and the very salvation that once was enjoyed. Do the other members of the family, do they have an attempt that they ought to make? In James 5.19, we see that they do. That's you and me for that one that has gone astray. We are reminded in words like this. Brethren, if any man be overtaken in a fall, and ye restore such an one, appreciate that when you do so, you hide a multitude of sins, and you save a soul from death. Notice he used the word brother in that text. When we thus perceive a member that's going astray or a member of the family that's losing his or her way, we should at least make an attempt to encourage and help them see the mistake that's being made. That's not to say we can make the decision for them. They may not want to come back to the family. They may want to forever distance themselves from it. And as tragic as that is, God will allow them to make that choice. But you and I might see in Galatians 6 verse 1 that brethren... Ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness and fear. But also, consider another possibility. Suppose a family member is in physical need. Some means of life is not apparent. 
some things that are needed, such as physical things like food or otherwise? Do you and I have obligation as members of the spiritual family to be of assistance? We studied at some length on Wednesday evenings just a few months back about benevolence and what's involved in it. That part of it certainly is related to members of the family, just as other passages relate it to those that are not members of the family. Can we stop to appreciate passages such as 1 John 3.17, where there a rhetorical question is asked, that if we perceive another have need and yet do nothing, does the love of God dwell within us? John's answer is no. Our heart thus is not touched and is not operating in the fashion of love that God would have it to exhibit. But also, what about a family member that's in discouragement? Perhaps in great hurting. A tragedy maybe has occurred in that person's life. Can you and I, as their brother or sister, be of at least some helpfulness or some aid? According to passages like Romans 12, 16, we certainly can be. For there we appreciate that we are able to rejoice with them that rejoice, but to weep with those that weep. We have a heart that's touched with the feeling of their problems. We may not be able to provide all the answers that we'd like, but we can at least be there to endure it with them, to help them see the trials and afflictions, and to be there for, with a helping hand. Maybe finally, what about, if possible, to help bear burdens? Wasn't it Paul who said, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ? Verse 2 of Galatians 6. There are many times that our heart may well be touched, and we will not be able to do all that we wish we could to alleviate the burden completely. But if possible, we can perhaps assist, and we can edify, and we can help. To look upon these ideas in the, as it relates to God's family maybe brings us to a point of conclusion or a point of summary. We've highlighted these ideas. First, the family is a very beautiful concept. This unit of people joined together in support and encouragement and in love, joined together as a mutual aspect of the greatness and one of the greatest things that the human family can appreciate. That family that we've discussed, though, also has a spiritual component. It's God's family as we discuss the church. And when we talk about God's family, may we never forget His family does have a name. We wear that name with pride. And may we thus never so live to bring reproach upon it or insult or to blaspheme it, for that's God's family name. It's the name He's given us to wear. In light of that point, we've also seen the greatness of the church as it is an edifying body. And it's this beautiful entity that in fact not only wears that very special name, but it also is able to appreciate a glorious relationship to both Christ and to God. And in that way, it redounds into everlasting glory for those that are members of it. Tonight, have you become a member of that body? As we noted earlier, it requires a birth process, not physical, but spiritual involving water and the Spirit. John 3 verse 5. Tonight, if you have never thus been baptized into Christ, let us take care of that very quickly. If you have faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, act upon that faith by repenting of your sins. Make a devout profession to not commit those again, to turn aside from them. Confess Jesus as the Son of God, and then be immersed, baptized for the forgiveness of those sins. 
When you rise from that watery grave, Christ's blood will have washed away those sins. No longer will they be with you. You will forever have lost the guilt associated with them because Jesus forgave them. Once you have been baptized, live faithfully till death. And upon so doing, you are promised the crown of life. If we need to help you to be rededicated to your first love, though, by way of prayer, upon your repentance in terms of the sins in your life and in terms of your confession, we'd then be happy to pray on your behalf. If we could help you in any of those ways tonight, would you not let it be known while together we stand and while we sing?